This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pal, David Moore. Hello, David. How are you? Doing well, Kevin. How are you? Well, we're doing great. Our old pal Evan is out in Surprise, and he's going to join us uh, for our uh, Rangers segment later, and maybe more than that. We may let him do more than just the Rangers. Uh, we'll yeah. see. If he's, TBD. He's, uh, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. We'll how, we how may nice get tired of each other. We may be at each other's throats and want to turn on him. So. <laughs> that, that could very well happen. <laughs> no question about it. So, David, uh, uh, over the weekend, how much of the All-Star festivities did you watch? Let's start with the game. None. None of the game. Wow. I, 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 I saw a few brief clips, but no, I did not. Uh, I, I'm, I've gotten into The Last of Us on uh, HBO, so I was oh all in on God. The Last of Us. I wanted to watch that in real time. I thought the uh, uh, the Mushroom People apocalypse was uh, held a little more lure for me than uh, another all-star game. I've yeah, seen many all-star games during my uh, professional career and, and covered many, been on the site of them. And uh, I don't want to come across like this old man, you know, yells at clouds sort of guy. <laughs> but uh, it, it's changed uh, quite a bit through the years. And, and look, it was, always, it was always a performative event, not a competitive event. But Usually what you saw is in the fourth quarter, there were, it it was, it adhered, it resembled at least a regular season game a bit more earlier, but as we've gone, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's really an individual showcase and, and look, the the game should be different. I get it, but, but all sports, uh, run into this. I think, I think baseball is the closest to what a baseball game actually is. They're all-star game. I think it's, I think it's much more difficult for the other sports to pull it off. Uh, basketball could if they wanted to, but they've kind of uh, mutated in a, into a different direction, M- much like yeah. those mushroom people on, uh, on The Last of Us. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate the plugs. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the thing about it that gets me is that, um, yeah, and I agree with your take on, on these All-Star games. Now, listen, I was all for – you know, let's let's bag the Pro Bowl. This is stupid, and and, and these are legitimate concerns. Guys getting hurt out here. In no question, no, no question. question about that. So I was all for that. I was all for going back to a superstars type competition and have fun with all this stuff, and 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 and, and you know market it the right way, and it can all be very fun. I have to say, I didn't watch any of it, but uh, I think that probably it was pretty well received by a lot of people. Now the All Star Game, I really felt compelled to watch it, especially because. Two Mavericks started in it, and on the same uh, side on, on Team LeBron. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, it was almost unwatchable. Because uh, here's the thing that bugged me about it more than anything else: 
let's take Kyrie Urban, who all of a sudden decided that he really needed to put up some points here. I know he he said before the game that he thought it was after important. not playing not playing the game before the Mavericks final game heading into the All Star yeah with game a, with a stiff lower back. back yeah I, I that that was not lost that was not lost on me either. Um, was the fact that okay, listen, there's nobody who's a better finisher, and of course the announcers were just going off about everybody and how great they all were. But I I can finish if no one's going to challenge me. If, if I you know I can make a layup, you know nine times out of ten, and that's all whether it was. It's just like one big layup line, you know, and and it's just it's just ridiculous. I I, had, I appreciated the fact that uh, you know Damian Lillard would take a shot at midcourt occasionally. At least he saw, you know, the the value of that. And that was pretty fun to watch him. And then, of course, he, he missed like four in a row after that. But he made his first one. And so, you know, that that was impressive. But other than that, it's just, just terrible. You know, it, it, it's just no it's no fun to watch that. And when we're talking about guys, or if you're not going to exert yourself on demons because you're afraid you're getting hurt, and then LeBron hurts his hand on a dunk, that, you know, yeah. So, so the whole thing is is kind of uh, semi ridiculous uh, at this point. I, I really don't, you know, know what you can do because you already have a skills competition for the weekend, right? Well, it's an and- event for sponsors. It, it's to reward your sponsors, and it's their. I mean, it is their Super Bowl party uh, because you know in that league. Um, you don't have the Super Bowl, which stops down, and you get all your sponsors to come in for the ultimate game because you have a series between two teams and there's home court advantage and you're going back and forth. So this is the chance for sponsors, friends of the league, uh, people who have deep ties to the league to come together for a big party weekend and and to be all together. So that's what it's evolved into. So it's it, it's more of a corporate event now than really a sporting event in a lot of ways. So I don't think that will change. And and you you started this by asking about the weekend's festivities, uh, which to me gets back to the only one that is held up through the years that people don't complain about is the three point shooting, right? And why is that? Because there's still a competitive element to it that you don't know how it's going to unfold. Uh, because you have each round, you you have whether or not a player is going to hit enough to go through to the next round. So there's an inherent drama based in the structure of that event. But a lot of people have gotten bored with the with the slam dunk event through the years. And even though you know this year's winner McClung did some outstanding things, he's not a name guy. And now you have named guys who don't want to take part in the competition anymore because there's no upside to them. They can only hurt their image or uh, persona, you know, by losing. They really have no upside to winning it. So and now you get to the game itself where, you know, no one plays defense and there's just kind of a handshake agreement early. Okay, well, this year. Uh, you know, we like so-and-so, he's hit a few shots early, this is his hometown, let's feed it to him, and, and you know, he'll be MVP, and what a great narrative that will be. So um, it, it's just a different sort of event, and, and you just have to accept that it's different. But that doesn't mean you have to enjoy it or watch it. And to me, that's why the game itself um, is just – I see these guys do incredible things in competition during games at key moments – uh, seeing them do it haphazardly in what is less intensity than a pickup game just just really doesn't grab my interest much. And that's what it's become. I, I don't think it's as intense as a pickup game. 
Oh, not even close. It's just a four quarter layup line, is what it yeah. is. You know that, that there's nothing. It's nothing more than that. Guys just kind of turning around, watch the guy run past them. It's like roadside defense, right? You just stand there when a the guy goes flying by. Well, that's enough complaining about all that. We don't want to be <laughs> yelling at people to you know, get off my lawn, but I, I don't think that, that many people could be uh, happy about all that. But over the All Star Weekend, Callie Kaplan, uh, who covers the Mavericks for the Dallas Morning News. Uh, talked to a lot of players uh, about the impact of the Kyrie Irving trade. And, of course, uh, all of them, uh, to a man, said, yeah, well, what's not to like? You know, Kyrie Irving's one of the best players in the league. And now, uh, as uh, you know, what Paul George uh, told them, that they used to – the Clippers would run a fire defense in which they would just kind of everybody rush <laughs> Luka and then make him, you know, you know give up the Let's ball and make him somebody give it else up. who's yeah. – who's not half as good to try to, to make a shot. And he says, now you can't do that. They got two guys. Uh, so, you, you know, and that's how – that's the thing about basketball. You add one more player, and all of a sudden you change things dramatically. Uh, that That is uh, – other than adding a quarterback, uh, that is the, the thing about basketball that separates it from, you know, any other sport. One player can make a, a significant difference – uh, in the uh, uh, what happens in a basketball game, so um, I I, I want to talk about that a little bit, David, about the response. You know, of course, we in the media had our responses about it. I was kind of like I was trying to see both sides of this thing from a basketball side. Clearly, this was a to me a, a good move for the Mavericks. Uh, you know, you hate to give up Spencer Dinwiddie and Dorian Finney-Smith, uh, but I did not think it was a a, a really uh, a big penalty to pay for that. I mean, look what uh, the Suns paid to get 34-year-old Kevin Durant. You know, four first-round draft picks. Yeah. My gosh. Uh, plus all the players they sent in the, in the deal. I, I would argue that the players they sent were better than the players that the Mavericks sent for Kyrie Irving. And I would argue that obviously four, four first-rounders as opposed to one first and three seconds – that's no comparison between sure. those two things. But why and were you Kyrie, able to get Kyrie for so much less? And that's because of the other issues that come with it. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, listen, he's not the I, – I, I, certainly at this point, Kevin Durant, to me, was always a question of, you know, is LeBron better? Yeah, probably. There were times in, in over the course of Kevin Durant's career, and I have gone on record saying, I think I'd rather have Durant. You know, he just – he is more a pure scorer than LeBron James is. Even yes. I know Le- LeBron James has got the scoring record, but if I have to have a shot be made, I'd rather have Kevin Durant take that shot than LeBron James. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, you know, you, you're getting that, but you're also getting a guy who's 34 years old coming off injuries, had a lot of his own issues as well as Kyrie Irving has had. Um, so, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the, the podcast. When... Anytime you talk to uh, uh, players on a team about what they want to add uh, or, or, or about what a team is about to do, they are always all in on adding talent. Always. They don't care about the future because they don't know if they're even going to be in the future of that team. They don't care about the organiza- organizational ramifications, the salary cap. It is strictly, well, yeah, this is a great player. Why, why aren't they better with him? Yes. That's how they break it down. They distill it to the purest form as competitors about what they go against in the moment. So, but, but, and that gets to the whole, the, the kernel of this, right? And the great debate. It's in the moment, 
what you get right now for when they take the court again after the All-Star break, of course it's a good trade for the Mavericks. But from an organizational standpoint, it's about more than one game or the final 30 games of the regular season or this postseason. It's about what it means for the direction of the franchise after that. And, and that's where uh, when players discuss these trades, that really doesn't factor into their thinking, nor should it. You're, you're asking just a, a strictly in the moment, the player they got, what about this and what about these two guys working together? But there's so much more that goes into it than just that. Yeah, we're, we'll see where this is all going to lead with the Mavericks eventually. You know, we'll uh, we'll find out how they they end up meshing together. So let, let's talk about that now, David. How much do you think they improve their odds at, uh, at at getting deep into the playoffs, getting back to the Western Conference Finals, maybe even going past that? I think immediately after the trade was made, you saw a lot of people, and you saw Vegas improving the Mavericks' chances a lot. Uh, and then, of course. The Suns trumped that by trading for Durant, uh, and then so then the odds of the, the Suns became the number one uh, team in the West, and then uh, according to the odds, and then I think Denver was uh, second at that point, um, but the Mavericks were still in the top three or four. Do, do you have you seen enough? And I know that they're, they're zero and two with both of them playing all together. Have you seen enough of them playing together to, to think that this team is markedly improved? Oh yeah. Yeah, there there's there's no doubt about that and and he's brought an energy to them and 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 you know I, the the older I get the more attention I do pay to body language because I know coaches do as well. And and just look at the body language of this team post trade versus what it was before. Uh you can tell they're all engaged, they're all in. They know that well hey, you know, we I think they had all come to accept that there was no way they were going to duplicate what they did last year, uh, that there was no ch- chance of getting pa- back to the conference finals. And there was a very good chance they were going to go out in the first round or wind up and f- find themselves in a play-in game, uh, which they still could find themselves in. Uh, but w- with these two guys, they also know that, look, we have enough time. It's not going to be a well-oiled machine, but but with these two guys, as long as we keep games close – we can win any game late because of these two guys on the floor. And so it really does put them back in the mix, I think, for getting to the conference finals when they weren't part of that mix before. Um, and and we saw last year, you know, they made the trade midseason. And normally in the past, teams that made trades midseason, it took a while to gel and come together. We haven't necessarily seen that of late. And, and when you have two players at, at this level, two they're not just top 10 guys in the league. You can you can start arguing whether they're top six to seven guys in the league, you know, I, I think when, with both of these guys. And, and that immediately gives you a chance to win every game or every series you're in. I don't think they're favored uh, and shouldn't be favored in the West, but I, I do think they're in the conversation, which they were not before. Yeah, they were not going to be able to run it back uh, the same way they did last year. No, that no. clearly was not working anymore. You know, well, they were they, less a team. They didn't have Brunson, and Brunson was such a huge part of that team and its chemistry. Yeah, he he was. I think what Brunson brought to that package was more than just uh, the ability to play next to Luca, which was obviously was very important, and he handled that really well, especially in the playoffs. And you know, he was he was perfect. You know, when when uh, when Luca was out. He took over the scoring low when Luca was back. He went back to being the the second fiddle like he'd been before, and and so he, he 
not many guys can do that. Uh, but I think there was more to it with with him. If you if we watch to see what he's done with the Knicks this year, look how Julius Randle has become an All Star. And Julius Randle was always a nice player, but not mm-hmm. an All Star. And uh, and he's having a great year. Uh, I think he has an impact on a team. I think his uh, you know his championship pedigree, frankly, from Villanova. I think that all of that stuff has played out now in the, in the pros. Uh, and, and I think he felt that would never be fully appreciated in Luca's shadow because of them being so close to the same age and because Luca established himself so early. But now he's showing he has those those other qualities. And, yeah, and, no, there's no and, question real quickly, about it. Going back to Kyrie Irving real quick, and this isn't on the court, but I, I, I've I found this very interesting in all the comments from, from the other players about Kyrie Irving and then Kyrie Irving itself. Two things I just want to sh- – throw in here on why this is not just about what happens on a basketball court. What was one of his first comments before he played here, a home game with the Mavericks? He was talking about how he wanted to be appreciated and he wanted the fans to appreciate and respond to him for the great player that he was. What I also found very interesting, and I think this deals with, I think this speaks gets to the core of what the Mavericks have to deal with on whether or not he's going to be here long-term is it was a throwaway question during all-star media availability. It was kind of at the end where everything else had been asked. And this was in Callie's piece uh, over the weekend. And someone asked him, well, if you weren't playing basketball, what would you want to do? He initially said he would want to be like a, a, a hotel restaurant travel critic slash blogger to go around to all of these places and criticize them when he should be getting five-star treatment and he was only getting four-star treatment. And then he kind of laughed and shrugged it off. And he said, well, no, I'm sure it would be something else. But I tell you, that, that tells you exactly what, in my mind, what he wants from the Mavericks in order to sign with them going forward. He wants five-star treatment. And he's always looking for that. And if he doesn't get that, I think in large part, that's why it hasn't worked in the other places he's been. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that because that's what we always got from Mark Cuban, right? Did we always used to talk about the plush towels and and the yeah. and the video games and the and the lockers and all that kind of stuff? That look, this is all, and we all laughed at that. That oh, Mark, they're not going to come for the plush towels. Uh, but the, the and my argument has always been uh, for their uh, inability to attract the superstar free agents was that Dallas is not on a coast, you know. Uh, and, and that was an issue beyond Mark's control. Now he was building himself on a model that he couldn't achieve and that, and you could criticize him for that, but you, I didn't think you could criticize him so much for not being able to attract those players. There were a lot of other teams that were not getting those players either. Mm-hmm. So now you got a, a player who is going to actually be here though, right? So he's going to spend three months here. He's going to see what it's like. Uh, it's a test drive. And I'm sure this is all part of Mark's thinking, we can make this nice enough for him that when he gets here and sees what it's like, he'll like it and he'll want to stay here instead of running off to join LeBron in, in Los Angeles. And so uh, we'll see if that happens. And we'll see if that, the, the Mavericks want that to happen, frankly. Uh, yeah. But I agree with you. Everything on the floor indicates this is going to be a lot of uh, a lot of fun to watch. You know, that, that Monday night game against Minnesota, I was there, you know, I'm plowing through my column, got to get it in on a, at a certain time. And you know I'm writing that it's a you know they're getting blown out by Minnesota. And the next thing I know, I'm having to change everything to say that yeah. you know 
they're about to win this game because uh, because he scored twenty. Kyrie Irving scored twenty six points in the fourth quarter. I mean, that's just there is no downside on the court short term. No, there is not. That's right. On the court, no short downside. Term. We th- yeah. we answered that. I think we've already answered that question. We, we, we that was a question was how will how will he play like next to Luca? How will Luca like it? Well, a Luca loves it, and b it looks just fine. It, it also gives them an element they did not have before. They they they've got a second gear now. They they've been playing in one gear all year long, and now they've got two gears. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes forward. All right. We've been joined now by our old pal, Evan Grant. Hi, Evan. How are you? How are things going out there in Surprise, Arizona? Well, based on the fact that this is take 16 of me trying to actually get on, they're they're going spectacular, Kevin. Me, technology, travel, it all goes exceptionally well. And and so far, uh, Jacob deGrom has only been hurt once, so that's good. Uh, How how is he – what's the latest – uh, health report on him. Well, apparently he was he was dealing on the cornhole game yesterday. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to play um, in the major leagues, but yes, we've been here uh, eight days. Tomorrow will be a week since the first pitcher and catcher workout, and Jacob has not fully participated, which only continues to rev the story nationally about just how durable Jacob deGrom is. The Rangers continue to say that this is not a significant issue. Um, I know any Mets fans who are listening to this are probably tired of hearing that, but they maintain that he had six bullpen sessions before he came to Arizona, that he was ahead of schedule, that they're being exceptionally cautious and that they also are aware that, look, we've got a weather system apparently coming in today and tomorrow that may have some impact on the Rangers' schedule. So I think, as Mike Maddox put it, a few days of caution here at the outset are going to pay bigger dividends down the road. And uh, right now all you can do is say, Okay, but you certainly would like to see Jacob DeGrom out there throwing bullpens with the other guys. Yeah, none of this matters. You know, it's like Mike Maddox is obviously right. No one's going to remember bullpen sessions and things that are going on in early spring training. Nobody's going to remember bullpen sessions if if he pitches in, right? This is all just a waste of time and and – unnecessary angst if he pitches but it just feeds the narrative and that's and that's the issue uh you know i i was on the uh the ticket this uh tuesday morning as we're taping this and the question was about uh the health of this rangers rotation i said well look it's obviously a legitimate question but the health of any rotation is a question you know if you're going to go deep into a postseason you got to have a healthy uh starting rotation you can't be missing Start, started for significant periods of time, not not the, the original five. Evan, do you remember what it was that in the Rangers' first World Series appearance? Was didn't they have just like almost? I, I'm trying to remember how many missed starts there were that season, but it was it was actually 2011. I think was the year that you're referring to. Um, 2010 began with Rich Harden in the rotation, oof. if you remember correctly, I remember Kevin. Rich so. Um, th- there were some changes over the course of 2010, but in 2011, it was exceptionally stable, and that's the outlier. Uh, the difference between this Rangers teams um, are, are multiple. Uh, there's more talent 
regardless of, of, of health or not, there's just more talent. Also, there's more depth and uh, it gives you the ability to potentially cover for for some of those guys if you miss some time. So I think the Rangers have improved on two fronts where the pitching, where the starting rotation is concerned. But until you get guys out there pitching and you're talking about the pitching performance instead of when they're going to be out there pitching, that narrative and that mill is going to be continued to be fed. And it's why you're going to have columns in the New York Post by stoking Mets fans' pettiness about how Justin Verlander is the anti-Jacob deGrom. And that's kind of where where we sit at this point. Well, I, I got to tell you, now, if I had my choice between Justin Verlander or Jacob deGrom, I'm taking Justin Verlander. Uh, and I think that eight out of ten uh, uh, fans would as well. But, uh, you know, he wasn't coming here, and uh, they got Jacob deGrom. And, and as, as we've seen – when he's on a field, he's as a talented. He may be the most talented pitcher in baseball when he's on a field. So, correct. And let, let's just say this, okay? He's had a lot of injury issues the last two years, and some of them have been nonspecific. Like the, I, I know when when Brandon McCarthy was here, and he had this um, uh, scapular uh, reaction that it was kind of hard to diagnose and kind of hard to get an idea of exactly when a guy would return. So that was frustrating. Um, but from 2015 through 2020, Jacob DeGrom pitched the third most innings in baseball. He's been more durable for a longer period of time than he's been fragile. And I, I just think that the narrative has turned so dramatically over the last two years that it's almost like we're forgetting Justin Verlander basically missed two seasons with Tommy John surgery in his late 30s. So, both these guys are outstanding pitchers. It's not a which would you rather have. I don't think that that saying that Justin Verlander or intimating that Justin Verlander has a harder work ethic than Jacob deGrom is, is productive. Um, I, I just think that it's unfortunate for the Rangers that they've started out camp with the story that was going to linger over Jacob deGrom one way or another simply being underscored and being the story of camp so far. Yeah. Well, that's just going to happen. That's, and that comes from a guy playing in New York too. Uh, that was, that was Jacob deGrom's uh, misfortune was to miss it so many games while playing for the Mets. Um, let's look at uh, the Rangers recent acquisition of Robbie Grossman, um, who uh, uh, is a switch hitter, uh, obviously a much better hitter from the right side. And uh, it looks like what the Rangers are figuring on is that he would be part of a, a platoon out there. And I'm not sure who the left-handed side of that would be, unless, it, as you wrote, it was going to be Brad Miller. Uh, there were a lot of different things that could happen with Brad Miller uh, in that situation. But I got to tell you, uh, if you look at those splits, and, uh, and, the, and the Rangers have, have never really had a platoon or what I would consider a, pl- a platoon in the outfield. They've mixed and matched and put different guys in positions, but it's never been just a set thing where they had one outfielder out there, uh, you know, for righties and another one for lefties. Uh, and and I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this works because uh, there's no reason not to believe in what Robbie Grossman's numbers have been over the last several years. Well, I, I think there's, 
if you go back to 2021, Kevin, and you take these two guys' splits, because last year was an aberration on, on a number of fronts based on how spring training went for, for teams. It was uh, Brad Miller was pretty much hurt all year because he just reported weak physically, and, and I think that impacted him all along. But go back to 2021, and you take Grossman and stick him specifically against left-handed pitching, and you play Brad Miller against right-handed pitching – for 500 plate appearances, you've got an 867 player. That that will more than play out there for what the Rangers are trying to do. And quite frankly, all they're trying to do right now is get that position to basically be league average, be a 740, 750 OPS situation and league average defense. And if you take Grossman and Miller and play them out there with the ability to take Bubba Thompson and above average defender and an elite runner – and use him in situations late in games, you've got the ability to take a three-headed monster and make a pretty pretty effective position out there. So I think that's how they're looking at things. I, I think the question still becomes now, how does this impact DH? Because in my mind, I thought Miller was going to end up getting more at-bats at DH than he would in left field. And I think now the Rangers are more considering him part of that platoon in left field. I think what it's going to do is it's going to put the Rangers in a position to carry a third catcher and have Mitch Garver uh, DH the great majority of the time. I still think they'd like to find kind of a left-handed hitting option as the occasional DH. Now, whether that's Josh Smith or whether that's uh, uh, somebody else, I, I think that that's probably – one of the few roster decisions that's going to be left to be determined. Yeah, I got to tell you, I still struggle with the whole Josh Smith thing. I mean, I, I, when he first came up in the first, I don't know, three weeks, month, whatever it was, and he was getting on base, uh, is, you know, the fact that he had no pop at all was not as much of an issue, especially when you've got so many guys around him in that lineup with pop, right? The, that's the one thing about the Raiders. They hit home runs. And so what they need is guys to get on base. If you've got a guy like Josh Smith on base in front of some of these guys, then now we're talking about something that kind of makes up for his lack of power, which is the same thing you can, of course, say about Bubba Thompson. Uh, but he's just got to have to get on base more than he was. The, at, he, he just really died at the end of, of last season. He got into some really bad habits. Um, and I think, look, he, he – uh, it was just a lot last year trying to come up, play every day. Um, this, I think, is a difference right now, or it, it kind of illustrates the difference right now with where the Rangers are and where they have been. They're putting a guy like Grossman and another veteran like Brad Miller out in the left field. No one, look, the ceiling isn't terribly, terribly high on these guys, but the floor is higher than most guys. And you're not going to have to develop one of those guys. Um, this team is now about trying to put the best team on the field and win as opposed to develop. And if, if Josh Smith is not ready to participate, to produce up here, if he's not ready to contribute, they've got other left it, to find a left-handed part of a platoon of a DH platoon is not the world's most complicated matter. But yeah. well, here's the thing about the, and you're absolutely right about all this. It, here's the thing about young players. They need to force their way into the lineup. You don't need to be handing it Correct. to them. And that's been the, you know, of course, when the Rangers have been so bad, there's no reason not to do it, right? You, you have to do it. You have to find out if these guys can play. So who who can play? 
who's got a future so he can make decisions long term about free agents and other signings. Uh, th- that's was supposed to be the benefit of suffering through these bad seasons. And unfortunately, the Rangers got very little, uh, very few answers uh, on, on any of these guys. And that was the biggest failure to me of all of this in the last you know, four or well, five years. They got answers, Kevin. They did they get got answers. bad answers is what they got. They got they, they got answers solutions. in the negative. They right? didn't get uh, solutions. Yeah. yeah, they did not they get solutions. Get solutions. Exactly right. Forward. So that, that that's uh so that's that's an interesting thing to me. And I'm a little intrigued by the possibility of uh, when you brought up three catchers of Sam Huff. Uh, all, although unfortunately, uh, you, you know, if you're Mitch Garvey, he both are right-handed hitters, and so it's not really offering you a big solution there. That would have been a lot better if uh, uh, Sam were left-handed and then our left-handed uh, hitting catcher, that that would really be a, a good solution because I, I like the idea of him if he's figuring something out. I know they they have worked with him uh, pretty extensively over the winter to try to you know, get through some things and some struggles he was having because when he first came up, I got to tell you, I was very impressed with his bat-to-ball skills. He looked, he looked really good at making contact, and then all of a sudden they're just a bunch of swing and miss. Uh, so. Yeah, it was, a, you know, it was 10 games in 2020, and it did look like he made a quick adjustment here or there to, like, kind of um, keep himself afloat. But last year the swing looked long and slow and just overmatched. I, I think maybe maybe this is evidence that I've done this too long, but I think, you know, in 30 years of coming to spring trainings, the number of times that – We've heard about how a guy's swing has been revamped over the winter um, are, are too long to count. I, I need to see it. You know, we're, we're just going to need to see it because the other option would be you could still carry a third catcher in Sandy Leone um, and, and use Garver pretty much as an everyday DH if you wanted to. Uh, so I think the same thing applies here, right? Sam is going to have to earn his way on the roster. Um so is Garver going to be the kind of guy who wants to catch some, though? Yeah, he definitely wants to catch some. He'd like to catch more than he DH. But I also think um, to be smart at the beginning of the year, you don't want to over overburden that that elbow and that shoulder that he had. Well, the shoulder, the elbow that he had surgically repaired. Um, there will be some opportunities. I don't think you know that Jonah Heim is going to catch more than three days in a row. Uh, to get him behind the plate. But I also think that that you just if, – if you carry a third guy capable of catching, then you've got more flexibility or more ability to just stick one of those two guys who you both think are productive, uh, Heim or Garver, into the DH spot on a daily basis. I want to ask one last thing before we get out of our Rangers segment here, Evan. Uh, and you've alluded to this, but I think it's something for, for fans to get a, a, a little bit of a better bite at. And that's, you know, okay, they did not go out and make a significant at, uh, addition in the outfield. Uh, Robbie Grossman is not that. Although I will say this, if they get 867 OPS out of left field, that's a significant production there. They're, you know, that's, that's a lot better. That's 200 points better than what they've been getting out there. So... Uh, that would be 300 three, points better than what they got last year. Well, that's how pitiful it was. Yeah, 300 points better. So, but there's certainly a possibility that if things are going well for the Rangers uh, and they feel like they're not getting enough production, that they will make a deal uh, probably for a bat, don't you think? Look, th- this move, uh, for me, the beauty of this move 
is that it gives them the ability to have, for lack of a better term, replacement level performance in left field. At, at, at a bottom level, that's what it could give them. Um, maybe this does give you better than you expected performance from or production from left field. It also gives you the ability to have guys like Ezekiel Duran and, and Dustin Harris and Aaron Zavala and Evan Carter all continue to work at the minor leagues and earn their way up the system. And the third part of it is they haven't used any equity in terms of uh, talent that's in the minor league system so that if they do get to the trade deadline and there's an area that they need to address and left field certainly logically would be that area that we're talking about, they will have the ability to go out and make a deal. I I, I think this this whole deal with Grossman and everything for me, it's 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 about the short term, and it's about making sure that this team has all its boxes checked uh, going into the season that allows them to at least get close to league average per, per production from left field, um, and to to determine where this team really is health wise. The one question I keep getting from people is, how many wins do you think this team gets? How many wins do you think this team gets? And I I keep answering people with, to me, it's not like based on what this team is right now, because right now I think this is an 80 to 85 win team, but I think it's going to depend on where this team is at the trade deadline. That's going to impact whether or not this team goes out and makes moves that makes it more more viable to become an 87 to 90 win team. Yeah, I guess that's the question uh, that you want to have answered is that have all the stunning moves that uh, Chris Young, that he has made, were these just trying to get them up to speed or will this be the MO of Chris Young as GM of the Rangers? Will he just be this kind of of, uh, executive who thinks that this is not working? I got to go out and get something. You know, uh, if we're not going to be championship caliber, I've got to get it. You know, we have to have it and we have to have it now. I think all I think the bulk of these moves were were basically to get on one level to get this team back up to speed. But on the other end, to give time at the minor league level for these guys to develop and earn their way to the big leagues, because I think what we have seen over the last really eight years is we've seen a string of guys come through here that were all touted as prospects, but didn't really earn their way to the big leagues, didn't dominate any league they were in. And when they got to the big leagues, what did we see? We saw guys who were not finished off, who had really pronounced up and down struggles. And and I think if, if you, if you have the ability to spend money and buy some time for the minor league players, you use that, you allow your minor league system to grow, and that's the best way to kind of create a sustain a more sustainable long-term window. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for our, the Rangers segment of our podcast. Uh, we're going to go over now and talk a little bit about the Cowboys. Uh, David Moore wrote a, a story for uh, Tuesday's paper uh, talking about uh, tagging, giving the franchise tag to Tony Pollard who, of course, is coming off a pretty significant injury, broken uh, leg, uh, ligament damage. He had uh, some kind of spiral surgery. It's all very terrible sounding. 
tightrope tightrope for my uh, medical background is what it was you know i I broke my leg when i was a junior in high school snapped that tibia right in half uh and i gotta tell you anytime i i hear somebody breaking their leg it it brings back horrible memories of all of that uh but uh so i guess first of all i want to ask you david and i I think all your points on that were very well taken and we're going to go over all those but let me ask you this is there any concern on the Cowboys' part, uh, any any concern on your part, that when Tony Pollard comes back from this injury and the surgery, and we're not sure exactly when that will be, sometime in training camp is when they're projecting, that there won't be some residue of this that kind of lingers on into the season? They don't seem uh, concerned with it, and they will proceed as if it is not uh, will not hinder his performance going forward is my understanding on, on what their approach is this off season. So they certainly have a, a better feel about that injury and uh, in the, in the recovery period than I do. I, you know, I will say just to contrast it with uh, Michael Gallup, who came off a significant knee injury last year. Um, you know, the feeling was with him, while he would be back early in the season, it would take him a while potentially all season to work his way through to kind of get back to the player he was before. I haven't heard those sort of uh, concerns or timeframes placed out, uh, placed on uh, Tony Pollard. And, and again, I think that speaks to uh, it, it's not the knee, uh, a, a broken, you know, and actually the, the surgery, it, it was a tightrope procedure, which is uh, it, the surgery is really more for the high ankle sprain rather than the fractured uh, fibula. In fact, what what this surgery does is because again, this is based on my vast va- vast background <laughs> in medical. Uh, you know, during my college years, uh, but they actually go in, and it's been used for several years on these type of injuries. They go in and they tighten up the tendons in the high ankle sprain, which was the more significant injury in a lot of ways, and that actually kind of pulls uh, the 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 fibula and the high ankle back into alignment. Yeah. I guess my issue is, uh, more of a mental thing than anything else. I, I do think sure. that, uh, it, it'll, we'll, we'll see how Tony handles that. Um, especially an explosive speed guy, right? Which is, yeah, which is the strength. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you want to know that when you put your foot down, then, you know, your the issue is always going to be, if I put my foot down, is somebody going to put theirs on top of it? You know, there's there's always that issue of, of, of contact at that point and what that's going to feel like. And and we don't know uh, how Tony will respond to that. So there's this, that's, a, that's significant issue number one for me. Significant issue number two for me is, let's say that the Cowboys come to their senses and stop all this silliness about, you know, wanting Zeke to come back. And they and they cut Zeke and let him go and and amortize his cap hit over the next two seasons and move on. Um, they can Tony Pollard really sustain the load as a lead back? Can he every game carry the ball 16, 18 times with the thought that he would once again be sharing the load as he has you know in the last couple of years here with Zeke? Just it would just be somebody else, whether that's Malik Davis or somebody that they add through the draft. Um, uh, Do you think he can stand up to that? Because my concern for for Tony is that he's never been that. He was not that in college. Uh, I think there's a reason why he was not that. And I've never talked to his college coaches. But I think some of it is, first of all, A, he's not a really big guy. He's 200 pounds, which is light for a running back in the NFL, especially these days. Uh, 
Two, he has a really upright running style. Uh, and so to me, when he's going through the line, I, I've never seen a back that looks like him when he's running with the football. You know, Eric Dickerson, of course, was an upright back, but he's huge. You Much know, bigger he guy. Six, yeah. yeah, he was a big guy, thick guy, fast guy. You know, he's just going 1,000 miles an hour. Tony looks like a guy trying to get through hallways at a crowded high school. You know, he kind of kind of stands up and kind of wiggles around and kind of uh, squeezes through places. And when you when you run like that, you, you may not always take direct hits, but when you're standing straight up like he tends to do, you do. So that would be my concern about him going forward. How long can you keep him on the field uh, long-term? Uh, and, of course, maybe that's – Part of the concern, as you're talking about, is by franchise tagging, you're only making a commitment for the one year, which I think is a smart move with him at this point. Uh, but secondly, do you think that the Cowboys believe he can handle that load as the lead back? Is There's not going to be any more games where he only gets the ball four times, that he's going to he's going to carry the ball 15 to 18 times a game. Well, one, no, I don't think they think he can be the lead back without a 1A. Uh, I I think they really feel they hit on the formula for his usage last year. And and it was his career year. And when you look at like yards after uh, contact, when you look at uh, average yards per play um, from the line of scrimmage and also receiving, he led all backs in the league at 5.94 yards, I believe, right after him, Christian McCaffrey, and how often we've talked about him being one of the best all-around backs in the league. So I think they feel they they hit on the ideal formula for his usage last year to maximize it without getting diminishing returns. And what happened there? He started to miss some games because he wore down a little bit late in the regular season, and they had to protect him. So uh, if you proceed without Ezekiel Elliott, you still need another player to take about the same number of touches that Ezekiel Elliott did. And it's whether you get that on a cheaper option in free agency, say maybe like a Jamal Williams from uh, Detroit, who is more of a power guy, who would be a a complement. You want a power guy to pair with him. In my mind, no question. And, no and question. or two, you pick up that player in the draft, and you develop, and and you greatly reduce uh, the money you're spending in, in the in the running back room. See where Tony Pollard is after two years of primary usage, and then make your determination about how you proceed at, at running back. So, to me, just as far as what it means for keeping uh, the the integrity of your run game intact for this season. Question. Uh- I also want to, uh, David, let's see, let's make sure we all are date straight. And you had that in your story today. So March the... Today opened the window on March 7th. They'll have to make a decision by March 7th. On March 7th, okay. But whether to franchise tag. Uh, and let, let's talk about the, the economics of that and why that's such a good idea anyway, because it's a running back and you get him at a cheaper price. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. So, David, uh, go over with us what some of the dates are uh, and, and when they need to, to use the franchise tag and why the franchise tag is such a good idea for a running back in the first place. Well, Tuesday, February 21st, uh, that opens the window uh, to franchise or transition tag players to prevent them from hitting free agency. Uh, that extends through March 7th. So if you're going to apply the tag, you have to do it by March 7th. And that is eight days before free agency begins in the league. So 
Um, you know, it's not just about making a decision with Pollard. They have 19 free agents, players who will become free agents. It's about working through contracts with those players, uh, getting a feel for where they are, who's going to stay, who's going to go, and uh, what makes the most sense. I, I would argue that franchising Tony Pollard makes the most sense for the club, uh, because $10.1 million is a relatively inexpensive franchise tag to hold. Uh, just for example, I think the only other person they would use it on would be Dalton Schultz, the tight end. And because they used it on Dalton Schultz last year, if they used it on him a second consecutive year, it would be $13.1 million to keep Dalton Schultz from reaching free agency. So already you're talking about $3 million more in a season just for the tag at a position where they have more quality players behind him than you do at running back. So, uh, you know, I know we've talked a lot about a wide receiver and, and, and fans are, are kind of fixated on upgrading that position. And, and, and that needs to take place uh, as well. But um, I, I still argue getting it right at running back is really what they need to do first before they addressed, uh, you know, free agency and, and the draft with uh, wide receivers. So I, I think that to me, that is why uh, it, it's cheaper to do it. Uh, you still have the uncertainty and how this isn't going to unfold uh, with uh, Ezekiel Elliott, but that allows you an impact player at the position, a difference maker from what we've seen, and allows you to build that position and, and keeps keeps you in good position for this upcoming season while you still work through and get to where you want to be at running back. Yeah, and getting where you want to be at running back to me is going to still require, even if you tag Tony Pollard, Malik Davis is not a 1A in my mind. You would not know. Uh, you would not think so. Now, he shows some nice things, but yeah, from what we've seen, you would not make that leap. So it is about using uh, another draft pick on a player or supplementing the position with a much cheaper option in free agency. And again, as we talked about before, uh, a power back. You want to compliment. Look, you know, I, look, I know a lot of people are, are, are down on Ezekiel Elliott and talk about his decline, and, and clearly he's not the player he was when he first came into the league. That's not even debatable. But I tell you what, and moving on from Ezekiel Elliott leaves you a much worse team in the red zone and on third and short, because you look at the percentage of times when everyone was in there, when everyone knew you were going to run him, and how effective he was in third and short, fourth and short, and inside the five, uh, he was a pretty big weapon for you, but now you're talking about return and investment. You're just not in those situations enough to warrant keeping a guy at that salary level on the roster. But you need to find someone else who can give you that or or you're not as uh, efficient of an offense as you were. Plus, you need to have a guy who, who does the other things that Zeke does. Exactly. Was, yeah, picking, picking up, up the blitz, blitz the doing the other field. things. Such yep. a great block. You know, that is not Tony Pollard's uh, forte. No. Uh, and he's gotten all. better at it, and you can leave him out there in any situation. Uh, but he was awful before. So it's yes. like he was better yes. at it is is really not a, a real compliment. Uh, so yes, you got to have somebody who handles all that. And and to me, I, I just really would like to see this team just get a big banger back there. You know, like a, a Derrick Henry type, a guy, a guy that is really going to bring a load. That just when you bring him into the yep. game, it just it just doesn't matter. Look what the Eagles did this year. They didn't have that in a running back. They had that in a quarterback. You know, yes. and and you knew that Jalen Hurts was going to get the ball, was going to be a quarterback sneak on third and one, fourth and one, or whatever it was. Everybody in the house knew that was going to happen, and they did it anyway. 
And with the with the way the rules are in the league now, and the way you can push guys in what we call a a rugby scrum uh, mm-hmm. offense, basically, you have to take advantage of that and, and the ability uh, to do that in a short yardage situation. And I just feel like the the more force I can get behind that on that kind of play, if this is what the rules are, then you have to take advantage of. It. No question. And they're going to look at that in the offseason, the competition committee on whether that, you know, whether the the Eagles and some other teams have taken that too far and it needs to be moderated a little bit. But all of that, even if they do, this league, more and more teams are going for it on fourth and one and fourth and two in situations on the field. They've never done it before. And that trend's only going to accelerate. So you need someone who who gives you the option of picking up those yards where the defense can't just say, well, they're not going to run it here. They're going to spread it out and do an end around or they're going to do, but they're not going to run between the tackles. You've got to be able to run between the tackles and give that threat. And Zeke, even in his diminished capacity, did that at a very, very high level for this Cowboys team. Yeah. Dave, we've not talked about this, uh, but uh, Jerry Jones acknowledged something that uh, that Babe Loffenberg used to just pound on me. Did, why don't you write about the fact that they need to be drafting a quarterback every year? And then, and of course, I was always in favor of that. I went back and looked at the days when when the the original Cowboys and Gil Brandt and, and the number of quarterbacks that they drafted and signed was just phenomenal. You know, they were they were were just a Every year, it was like a quarterback factory. Uh, people going through here, and they and they hit on a lot of those guys. They traded a lot of those guys, and and obviously, they 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 built pretty much the image of the franchise on on the players that they drafted at quarterback over the years. That has not been the case with the Cowboys. Uh, they have, uh, you know, Jerry Jones has drafted uh, the first quarterback, of course, was Troy Aikman. He drafted, which the Cowboys would have drafted anyway. That was just a no brainer. That's what they were going to do. So I don't give them a, a lot of credit for that. They drafted or they signed Tony Romo as a free agent. Uh, and so they did produce him. And then, of course, they drafted Dak Prescott. Um, but Jerry Jones said the other day that, hey, you know what? I think we need to start drafting a quarterback every year. Do you believe him when he says that? Yes. And, uh, you know, they, now it's about where they draft him, right? And what stage Dak is in his career and how that's going to change. Um, you know, Mike McCarthy, when he got here, they took a quarterback in the, in the seventh round, Ben DiNucci. Uh, didn't work out. Uh, now it's time again to take another one. It's going to be interesting to see, and I do believe they'll take one this year. Are you going to wait till the seventh round? Or are you going to go, well, Dak's getting a little older. Let's take one in the fifth round uh, and see how it goes. And, and to me, you always take a quarterback, you bring him into your system, you have two to three years to evaluate him, and if you think he can play in the league, you keep him. If not, then you go back in the draft two to three years later. So I don't know that you draft a quarterback every single year unless you've come to the determination after one year that this guy is not going to get it done. Uh, so, But, yeah, I, I would expect them on the third day this year to take a quarterback. I don't think we've moved to the point where on the second day, which is the second or third round, they will yet. Uh, but I do believe on that third day, on that Saturday of the draft, I would be stunned if they don't draft a quarterback this year. Well, you, you, you sent a message if you draft a quarterback in the first two rounds, right? That's what Jalen oh, sure Hurts do. was. Jalen yeah. Hurts was a message to Carson Wentz when he yeah. was taken in the second round. You know, But I don't know that he was – it was a message, but they didn't necessarily expect it to turn out the way it did, the message to no, turn out not. the way it did. No, they did not. But, but, but yeah. it did, you know, and, and that's – and again, like you say, uh, 
Now, everything was in place before Jerry took over that team, but but Troy Aikman was the first player taken, a first-round quarterback. But look at the last two quarterbacks that have long-term been with this team. Dak Prescott was in the fourth round. Tony Romo was an undrafted rookie free agent who came with the team. So, um, and ideally, you want to get that guy. So when you do turn it over, you have, you're not paying him that much, and you can build the team around him. Uh, to take advantage of that, something they were unable to do with Dak Prescott on his rookie contract, which would probably be another podcast for another time, Kevin. Yeah, it would be. Well, you know, it's, I, I tell fans all the time because people just write me continuously saying, oh, they just need to get rid of Dak. And I said, you know, quarterbacks are like jobs. You don't quit one until you have another one. Uh, and, and that's yep. why you have to have a quarterback in-house that you really believe in before you can just say, all right, we're going to let this guy go. Because even if you thought you could trade Dak Prescott at this point, are you going to get a quarterback in return? You know, no, you're not. So, uh, or you wouldn't want it, uh, that that quarterback. So that's that's why it is so important for them to do that. Because, I, you know, Cooper Rush did a fine job as a backup quarterback. But I think we all believe that that that's exactly what Cooper Rush is, right? Sure. He's a backup Mm -hmm. quarterback. You know, a nice guy to have around, but not the kind of guy who's going to take over this team, you know. There are so many things that go into being a quarterback. I, you know, and David, you know that locker room a lot better than I do. The the one thing that that Dak Prescott has going for him more than anything else is the belief of those guys in that room and yep. and what they see from him and and the presence that he has, the leadership he exhibits, all those things that fans can't see. Uh, he has those things in spades. Uh, I, I don't think that Cooper Rush is going to have that same kind of, of feeling in the, in the locker room. I'm not saying that they don't think they couldn't, they wouldn't play for him. They don't like him. It's just a different type of feeling for a quarterback like him as opposed to a quarterback like Dak. I think it has everything to do with just who he is as a, a personality, his charisma, all those kind of things. Those are all very important. Those are all the things that Troy Aikman and Roger Staubach have talked about in the past about why they thought that Dak Prescott was the right quarterback for the Cowboys. Now, I don't know if they still think that. And I don't know if I still think that. Uh, but uh, there are just a lot of things that go into it, a lot more than what people think. It's not as simple as saying, eh, let's just get rid of this guy. Yep. Oh, you're exactly right. And you don't have anyone in place right now. And that's what they, they are starting to do. But it's going to be different grades, right? There's not a sense of urgency to it right now. But that sense of urgency will be different two years from now than it is at this moment. Especially oh, if whoever, ta- I, I, yeah, especially I think if whoever the, they take in this draft doesn't show much promise. Yeah. I, I think Dak's on the clock. Personally, I think that this yeah. year That's will fair. say a lot about his career. If he if he bounces back and yep. and plays more like he did two years ago, then okay, I think that people will feel more comfortable about him going forward. Especially if the team goes somewhere in the playoffs. Uh, and then, of course, that's the. That's always the indicator, right? It doesn't really even matter what he does during the season. He could have a great regular season. The Cowboys get bounced after the first game, you know, uh, in the playoffs. Which he's done before, yeah. Which he's done before. It won't matter, you know. So uh, we'll see how far all that goes. Uh, so, Evan, do you have any you know, it's concerns also about like It's almost like this Dak Prescott debate just goes on ad infinitum. Oh, yeah, absolutely it does. Well, you know, there's a lot of factors in it. And 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 I don't even want to get into some of it. I don't even want to acknowledge one side of that uh, debate about Dak Prescott that people have because it's just it's it's just so beneath us, you know. I just I can't hardly deal with that factor anyway. Uh, but you know, I I get it what people are saying. 
Roger Staubach came in and what? In his first year as a starter, you know, the team goes all the way. You know, uh, when you set those kind of standards, you know, Troy Aikman, of course, they were terrible his first year. But within what? Four years, they won a Super Bowl. Uh, And so those are the benchmarks in this town. You know, people are used to that. That's what they want from a quarterback. You know, I, I think it's interesting, you know, Tony Romo never won anything. Uh, but now I think people are, are feeling a little more romantic in their, you know, remembrances of, of Romo. Uh, not while he was playing, though. Not, not while, while he was, he was playing. No. no, you're right. That's absolutely right. You know, he, he got buried for all of that, too. And, you know, uh, I, I got to tell you, I always felt like that as talented as, as Tony was, a, a far more talented, a far more, far more arm, arm talent than uh, Dak Prescott has. Uh, but I always believe more in Dak as a quarterback and leading this team to wins than I believed in Tony Romo. I always felt like that Tony was too much of a gambler, and at some point he was just going to do something just because he wanted to do it, and it was going they were going to suffer because of that. Uh, and, and Tony played on not a lot of talented teams, and I will say, you know, over the course of Tony's career and over the course of Dak's career, Dak's had more talent around him than Tony did for the most part. Uh, but there were a couple of years in there when the Cowboys were really good and Tony couldn't do anything with those teams. So uh, we'll see if if, uh, if Dak just ends up being uh, another Tony Romo. Uh, I, I'm not going to get either one of those guys to the level of Danny White. You know, at least Danny got the NFC Championship games. So uh, in in the in the fans' estimation and of what this talent level is at quarterback, it's always going to be measured by Lombardi trophies in this town. All right, that's going to do it, I think, for us. Boys, you all got anything else that you all want to throw in here at the end? I'll, I'll let you all do that if you like. Evan, where are you going to eat today at lunch in, uh, in Surprise? I'm, I'm trying to put, come up with a Surprise um, sub-sandwich uh, shop ranking. Um, you've got all your chains, but I, 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 I think I've become a Jersey Mike's guy. Yeah, I like Jersey Mike's. Any good uh, local spots? Or are they all chains? They're all chains. Um, no good delis anymore. Uh, not not that. No, there's you know, there's Archie's Deli is a long gone remnant of of, a, of an era gone by. But I, I feel like uh, if I was gonna rank the subs, I would rank it uh, Jersey Mike's, Firehouse, and then I'd rather eat my knuckles. <laughs> yeah well you can do that anywhere though that's the problem you want the local flavors like david There's said no you want flavor and surprise i did go to a brewery and restaurant the other night and actually had a decent pizza there uh, there you go 48 was not bad yeah so. yeah it's, it's not it's not like it i have to say this is my biggest disappointment for the rangers moving from port charlotte florida grapefruit league to arizona the cactus league was that there were lots of cool little places to eat around Port Charlotte. You know, we, we, uh, what was that Italian place we used to go to sometimes? Where was that? What's the name of that? I forget, but it was, yeah, I forget the name of that place. God, it's been 20 years since we've been in Port Charlotte. I know, it was great. And then there was that, there was that, there was a place where you went and got that panini and, and you asked him if that Cuban was going to be pressed. And yeah. it was the all time greatest quote you ever got from anybody. In which the man said to you, "What kind of gas station do you think I'm running here?" 
But you know, in Florida, you could there were all those little dive spots to go get some grouper and um, and fish and shrimp and whatnot. And um, I, I there's no there's nothing that's um, less grouper in the desert. There's, yeah, yeah it's not no. Well, they could have something, couldn't they? You know, can somebody I mean, grill you, cactus or how, something? How comfortable would you feel eating like like? I don't eat Tex-Mex really outside of the state of Texas. No, that's a rule. That's a rule. Um, there's just not much that's that's uh, indigenous to Arizona. You don't go to the desert for scallops cuisine. Yeah, no, don't don't be ordering seafood and uh, surprise. No, no that, that reminds me of the time that I, I I took my mother to see her mother one time, and we stopped in this little town in Comanche. And uh, we were in this diner, and my mother ordered the seafood surprise. <laughs> seafood yeah. surprise. And she got and it. I, and so then after, she, of, course I, of course, I ate uh, either a chicken fried steak or a hamburger, which is what you always eat in a diner anywhere. Just to either eat a hamburger or the chicken fried steak. Don't eat anything else. And, and after she finished, she goes, you know, that wasn't very good. BLT. You can and always said, eat a BLT in a diner. Yeah, you can eat a BLT anywhere. <laughs> But, you know, that's like surprise. the episode of Seinfeld when George ate at the diner with his mother and she ordered the lobster or he, he she was going to order the lobster. <laughs> I had the lobster last night on lobster night at TJ's. It was I got to tell you, it was pretty good. Was There's pretty nothing good wrong stuff. with a nice lobster. Yeah, no kidding. That was fun. I, I, I felt like it was July, though. I mean, you know, lobster with an ear of corn and, and potatoes and all this stuff. It's like. You know, I think I'm out of season on this, but it's okay. Lobster does feel like a summertime meal. Yeah, it does. There's it's not great. any lobster in the desert either. There, no, there's, there's nothing. It's a desert, Evan. It's a desert. There's nothing out there. There's not even a baseball team. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That was that was a, a, a throwback that was low, to previous. That was, low, low, that was a low blow. That was a, a throwback to previous uh Spring trainings and uh, surprise. But I, I no, will say this, speaking of Seinfeld, I was very happy because I signed up for the Jersey Mike Sub Club the other day since I figured I'll be eating there regularly while I'm out here. <laughs> this is, and, these uh, are bad sides. And they had uh, they had some special when I signed up for the Sub Club thing and I ordered subs on like two or three days and whatever it was in a row. I got a coupon for a free sub. So just like Elaine, I'm going to go have that mediocre sub. Damn <laughs> I worked hard for it, and I'm going to get They have a big salad there, too? They don't have – you know, they do have a salad at, at Jersey Mike's. What they do is they take, a, a like, a bowl, and they just throw all the stuff that they would put on a salad, on a sandwich in the bowl. Yeah, well, exactly. It's, it's kind of like Mexican food. It's all the same thing. It just depends on what you get it on, right? I think we you determined know? at this point that Jersey Mike's won't be one of the sponsors of this podcast going <laughs> forward. They got a lot better shot of being a sponsor of this podcast than Jimmy John's does. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Oh. I'm a Jimmy John's guy. It's not bad. My, even my kids love Jimmy John's. I, I'm just like, it's okay. It's all right. Nah. All right. I think that's going to do it for the podcast. Our, our producer, Christian Vasquez, that walked away from his computer like five minutes ago. I'm not even sure what's happened. But anyway. Some talk will do that to a guy. All right. He'll, he'll probably just cut all this part out of it anyway. Uh, so that's going to do it from everybody in here and everybody out there. Thanks and come back next week and we'll talk more about Jersey Mike's and how many free subs that Evan has got. I miss quiz nose.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.